the argument to distinguish spirituality from religion. 20% of Americans describe themselves as spiritual but not religious. Although the claim seems to annoy believers and atheists equally, separating spirituality from religion is a perfectly reasonable thing to do. It is to assert two important truths simultaneously. Our world is dangerously riven by religious doctrines that all educated people should condemn, and yet there is more to understanding the human condition than science and secular culture generally admit. One purpose of this book is to give both these convictions intellectual and empirical support. The word spirit comes from the Latin spiritus, which is a translation of the Greek pneuma, meaning breath. Around the 13th century, the term became entangled with beliefs about immaterial souls, supernatural beings, ghosts, and so forth. It acquired other meanings as well. We speak of the spirit of a thing as its most essential principle or of certain volatile substances and liquors as spirits. Nevertheless, many non-believers now consider all things spiritual to be contaminated by medieval superstition. Authors who attempt to build a bridge between science and spirituality tend to make one of two mistakes. Scientists generally start with an impoverished view of spiritual experience, assuming that it must be a grandiose way of describing ordinary states of mind, parental love, artistic inspiration, awe at the beauty of the night sky. In this vein, one finds Einstein's amazement at the intelligibility of nature's laws described as though it were a kind of mystical insight. New Age thinkers usually enter the ditch on the other side of the road, they idealize altered states of consciousness and draw specious connections between subjective experience and the spookier theories at the frontiers of physics. Here we are told that the Buddha and other contemplatives anticipated modern cosmology or quantum mechanics and that by transcending the sense of self, a person can realize his identity with the one mind that gave birth to the cosmos. Spirituality must be distinguished from religion, because people of every faith, and of none, have had the same sorts of spiritual experiences. In the end, we are left to choose between pseudo-spirituality and pseudoscience. Spirituality must be distinguished from religion, because people of every faith, and of none, have had the same sorts of spiritual experiences. While these states of mind are usually interpreted through the lens of one or another religious doctrine, we know that this is a mistake. Nothing that a Christian, a Muslim, and a Hindu can experience, self-transcending love, ecstasy, bliss, inner light, constitutes evidence in support of their traditional beliefs. Due to the fact that their beliefs are logically incompatible with one another, a deeper principle must be at work. That principle is the subject of this book, the feeling that we call I is an illusion. There is no discrete self or ego living like a minotaur in the labyrinth of the brain and the feeling that there is, the sense of being perched somewhere behind your eyes, looking out at a world that is separate from yourself, can be altered or entirely extinguished. Although such experiences of self-transcendence are generally thought about in religious terms, there is nothing, in principle, irrational about them. From both a scientific and a philosophical point of view, they represent a clearer understanding of the way things are. Deepening that understanding, and repeatedly cutting through the illusion of the self, is what is meant by spirituality in the context of this book. The mystery of consciousness and how it matters in every aspect of our lives. Investigating the nature of consciousness itself, and transforming its contents through deliberate training, is the basis of spiritual life. In scientific terms, however, consciousness remains notoriously difficult to understand or even to define. In fact, many debates about its character have been waged without the participants finding even an ordinary topic as common ground. 
While we need not recapitulate the history of our confusion on this point, it will be useful to briefly examine why consciousness still poses a unique challenge to science. We know, of course, that human minds are the product of human brains. There is simply no question that your ability to decode and understand this sentence depends upon neurophysiological events taking place inside your head at this moment. But most of this mental work occurs entirely in the dark, and it is a mystery why any part of the process should be attended by consciousness. Nothing about a brain, when surveyed as a physical system, suggests that it is a locus of experience. Were we not already brimming with consciousness ourselves, we would find no evidence for it in the universe, nor would we have any notion of the many experiential states that it gives rise to. The only proof that it is like something to be you at this moment is the fact obvious only to you that it is like something to be you. However we propose to explain the emergence of consciousness, be it in biological, functional, computational, or any other terms, we have committed ourselves to this much. First there is a physical world, unconscious and seething with unperceived events, then, by virtue of some physical property or process, consciousness itself springs, or staggers, into being. This idea seems strange but perfectly mysterious to the author. That doesn't mean it isn't true. When we linger over the details, however, this notion of emergence seems merely a placeholder for a miracle. Consciousness, the sheer fact that this universe is illuminated by sentience, is precisely what unconsciousness is not. And I believe that no description of unconscious complexity will fully account for it. According to the author, consciousness may very well be the lawful product of unconscious information processing. But he doesn't know what that sentence actually means, and he doesn't think anyone else does either. The unconscious mind is important, but consciousness is what matters to us, not just for the purpose of spiritual practice but in every aspect of our lives. Consciousness is the substance of any experience we can have or hope for, now or in the future. If God spoke to Moses out of a burning bush, the bush would have been a visual percept whether veridical or not of which Moses was consciously aware. It should be clear that if a person begins to suffer from intractable pain or depression, if he experiences a continuous ringing in his ears or the consequences of having acquired a bad reputation among his colleagues, these developments are matters of consciousness and its contents, whatever the nature of the unconscious processes that give rise to them. Consciousness is also what gives our lives a moral dimension. Without consciousness, we would have no cause to wonder how we should behave toward other human beings, nor could we care how we were treated in return. Granted, many moral emotions and intuitions operate unconsciously, but it is because they influence the contents of consciousness that they matter to us. The conventional sense of self is an illusion. There are logical and scientific reasons to accept this claim, but recognizing it to be true is not a matter of understanding these reasons. Like many illusions, the sense of self disappears when closely examined, and this is done through the practice of meditation. What makes me the same person I was five minutes ago, or yesterday, or on my 18th birthday? Is it that I remember being those former selves and my memories are somewhat accurate? In fact, I've forgotten most of what has happened to me over the course of my life, and my body has been gradually changing all the while. Is it enough to say that I am physically continuous with my former selves because most of the cells in my body are the same as or descended from those that made up the bodies of these younger men? The pronoun I am the name that most of us put to the sense that we are the thinkers of our thoughts and the experiences of our experiences. It is the sense that we have of possessing, rather than of merely being, a continuum of experience. We will see, however, that this feeling is not a necessary property of the mind. 
and the fact that people report losing their sense of self to one or another degree suggests that the experience of being a self can be selectively interfered with. Obviously, there is something in our experience that we are calling I, apart from the sheer fact that we are conscious, otherwise, we would never describe our subjectivity in the way we do, and a person would have no basis for feeling that she had lost her sense of self, whatever the circumstances. Nevertheless, it is extremely difficult to pinpoint just what it is we take ourselves to be. Many philosophers have noticed this problem, but few in the West have understood that the failure to locate the self can produce more than mere confusion. The feeling that we call I is itself the product of thought. Having an ego is what it feels like to be thinking without knowing that you are thinking. According to the author, this difference between Eastern and Western philosophy may have something to do with the influence of Abrahamic religion and its doctrine of the soul. Christianity, in particular, presents impressive obstacles to thinking intelligently about the nature of the human mind, asserting, as it does, the real existence of individual souls who are subject to the eternal judgment of God. What does it mean to say that the self cannot be found or that it is illusory? It is not to say that people are illusory. There is no reason to doubt that each of us exists or that the ongoing history of our personhood can be conventionally described as the history of ourselves. But the self in this more global, biographical sense undergoes sweeping changes over the course of a lifetime. While you are, in many ways, physically and psychologically continuous with the person you were at age 7, you are not the same. Your life has surely been punctuated by transitions that significantly changed you, marriage, divorce, college, military service, parenthood, bereavement, serious illness, fame, exposure to other cultures, imprisonment, professional success, loss of a job, religious conversion. Each of us knows what it is like to develop new capacities, understandings, opinions, and tastes over the course of time. It is convenient to ascribe these changes to the self. The goal of meditation is to uncover a form of well-being that is inherent to the nature of our minds. We wouldn't attempt to meditate, or engage in any other contemplative practice if we didn't feel that something about our experience needed to be improved. But, here lies one of the central paradoxes of spiritual life, because this very feeling of dissatisfaction causes us to overlook the intrinsic freedom of consciousness in the present. As we have seen, there are good reasons to believe that adopting a practice like meditation can lead to positive changes in one's life. But the deepest goal of spirituality is freedom from the illusion of the self, a nd to seek such freedom, as though it were a future state to be attained through effort, is to reinforce the chains of one's apparent bondage in each moment. Traditionally, there have been two solutions to this paradox. One is to simply ignore it and adopt various techniques of meditation in the hope that a breakthrough will occur. Some people appear to succeed at this, but many fail. It is true that good things often happen in the meantime, we can become happier and more concentrated. But we can also despair of the whole project. The words of the sages may begin to sound like empty promises, and we are left hoping for transcendent experiences that never arrive or prove merely temporary. The ultimate wisdom of enlightenment, whatever it is, cannot be a matter of having fleeting experiences. The goal of meditation is to uncover a form of well-being that is inherent to the nature of our minds. It must, therefore, be available in the context of ordinary sights, sounds, sensations, and even thoughts. Peak experiences are fine, but real freedom must be coincident with normal waking life. The other traditional response to the paradox of spiritual seeking is to acknowledge it fully and concede that all efforts are doomed because the urge to attain self-transcendence or any other mystical experience is a symptom of the very disease we want to cure. 
There is nothing to do but give up the search. These paths may appear antithetical, and they are often presented as such. The path of gradual ascent is typical of Theravada Buddhism and most other approaches to meditation in the Indian tradition. And gradualism is the natural starting point for any search, spiritual or otherwise. Such goal-oriented modes of practice have the virtue of being easily taught because a person can begin them without having had any fundamental insight into the nature of consciousness or the illusoriness of the self. He need only adopt new patterns of attention, thought, and behavior, and the path will unfold before him. By contrast, the path of sudden realization can appear impossibly steep. It is often described as non-dualistic because it refuses to validate the point of view from which one would meditate or practice any other spiritual discipline. Consciousness is already free of anything that remotely resembles a self, and there is nothing that you can do, as an illusory ego, to realize this. Such a perspective can be found in the Indian tradition of Advaita Vedanta and in a few schools of Buddhism. Those who begin to practice in the spirit of gradualism often assume that the goal of self-transcendence is far away, and they may spend years overlooking the very freedom that they yearn to realize. The liability of this approach became clear to the author when he studied under the Burmese meditation master Sayadaw U. Pandita. Sitting through several retreats with U. Pandita, each a month or two in length, based on the monastic discipline of Theravada Buddhism. He did not eat after noon and was encouraged to sleep no more than four hours each night. Outwardly, the goal was to engage in 18 hours of formal meditation each day. Inwardly, it was to follow the stages of insight as laid out in Buddhaghosa's 5th century treatise, the Visuddhimagga, and elaborated in the writings of U Pandita's own legendary teacher, Mahasi Sayadaw. The logic of this practice is explicitly goal-oriented. According to the author, one practices mindfulness not because the intrinsic freedom of consciousness can be fully realized in the present but because being mindful is a means of attaining an experience often described as cessation, which is thought to decisively uproot the illusion of the self along with other mental afflictions, depending on one's stage of practice. Cessation is believed to be a direct insight into an unconditioned reality Pali, Nibbana, Sanskrit, Nirvana that lies behind all manifest phenomena. Gurus, death, drugs, and other puzzles. Spiritual teachers of a certain ability, whether real or imagined, are often described as gurus, and they elicit an unusual degree of devotion from their students. If your golf instructor were to insist that you shave your head, sleep no more than four hours each night, renounce sex, and subsist on a diet of raw vegetables, you would find a new golf instructor. However, when gurus make demands of this kind, many of their students simply do as directed. In the West, the term guru immediately conjures the image of a surrounding cult of devotees, a situation known to give rise to terrifying social deformities. In cults and other fringe spiritual communities, we often find a collection of needy and credulous dropouts ruled by a charismatic psychotic or psychopath. When we consider groups like the People's Temple under Jim Jones, the Branch Davidians under David Koresh, and Heaven's Gate under Marshall Applewhite, it is almost impossible to understand how the spell was the first cast, let alone how it was maintained under conditions of such terrible deprivation and danger. But each of these groups proved that intellectual isolation and abuse can lead even well-educated people to destroy themselves willingly. Gurus fall at every point along the spectrum of moral wisdom. Charles Manson was a guru of sorts. Jesus, the Buddha, Muhammad, Joseph Smith, and every other patriarch and matriarch of the world's religions were as well. For our purpose, the only differences between a cult and a religion are the numbers of adherents and the degree to which they are marginalized by the rest of society. 
One cannot travel far in spiritual circles without meeting people who are fascinated by the near-death experience NDE. NDE has led many people to believe that consciousness must be independent of the brain. However, these experiences vary across cultures, and no single feature is common to them all. But the deepest problem with drawing sweeping conclusions from the NDE is that those who have had one and subsequently talked about it did not die. Indeed, many of them appear to have been in no actual danger of dying. And those who have reported leaving their bodies during a true medical emergency, after cardiac arrest, for instance, did not suffer a complete loss of brain activity. Even in cases where the brain is alleged to have shut down, its activity must return if the subject is to survive and describe the experience. In such cases, there is generally no way to establish that the NDE occurred while the brain was offline. Some subjects even say that they learned facts while traveling beyond their bodies that would otherwise have been impossible to know, for instance, a secret told by a dead relative, the truth of which was later confirmed. Reports of this kind seem especially vulnerable to self-deception, if not deliberate fraud. There is another problem, however, even if true, such phenomena might suggest only that the human mind possesses powers of extrasensory perception clairvoyance or telepathy, for example. This would be an astonishing discovery, but it wouldn't demonstrate the survival of death. Why? Because unless we could know that a subject's brain was not functioning when the impressions were formed, the involvement of the brain must be presumed. Everything we do is for the purpose of altering consciousness. We form friendships so that we can feel love and avoid loneliness. We eat specific foods to enjoy their fleeting presence on our tongues. We read for the pleasure of thinking another person's thoughts. Every waking moment, and even in our dreams, we struggle to direct the flow of sensation, emotion, and cognition towards states of consciousness that we value. Drugs are another means toward this end. Some are illegal, some are stigmatized, some are dangerous, though, perversely, these categories only partially intersect. Some drugs of extraordinary power and utility, like psilocybin the active compound in magic mushrooms and lysergic acid diethylamide LSD, pose no apparent risk of addiction and are physically well tolerated, and yet one can be sent to prison for their use, whereas drugs such as tobacco and alcohol, which have ruined countless lives, are enjoyed ad libitum in almost every society on earth. One of the great responsibilities we have as a society is to educate ourselves, along with the next generation, about which substances are worth ingesting and for what purpose and which are not. The problem, however, is that we refer to all these biologically active materials by a single term, drugs, making it nearly impossible to have an intelligent discussion about the psychological, medical, ethical, and legal issues surrounding their use. The poverty of our language has been only slightly eased by the introduction of the term psychedelics to differentiate certain visionary compounds, which can produce extraordinary insights, from narcotics and other classic agents of stupefaction and abuse. Drug abuse and addiction are very real problems, the remedy for which is education and medical treatment, not incarceration. In fact, the most abused drugs in the United States now appear to be oxycodone and other prescription painkillers. Should these medicines be made illegal? Of course not. But people need to be informed about their hazards, and addicts need treatment. And all drugs, including alcohol, cigarettes, and aspirin, must be kept out of the hands of children. Conclusion Spirituality begins with a reverence for the ordinary that can lead us to insights and experiences that are anything but ordinary. And the conventional opposition between humility and hubris has no place here. 
Yes, the cosmos is vast and appears indifferent to our mortal schemes, but every present moment of consciousness is profound. In subjective terms, each of us is identical to the very principle that brings value to the universe. Experiencing this directly, not merely thinking about it, is the true beginning of spiritual life. Religious stories may bring meaning to people's lives, but some meanings are patently false and divisive. What does spiritual experience mean? If you are a Christian sitting in church, it might mean that Jesus Christ survived his death and has taken a personal interest in the fate of your soul. If you are a Hindu praying to Shiva, you will have a very different story to tell. Altered states of consciousness are empirical facts, and human beings experience them under a wide range of conditions. To understand this, and to seek to live a spiritual life without deluding ourselves, we must view these experiences in universal and secular terms.